As a father of five, I call them the Fab Five, I have uh, many opportunities to visit the doctor's office, as you can imagine. When my kids were younger, these visits were unpredictable. And what I mean by that was I never really knew how my kids were going to react based on what the doctor wanted from them. You know, it's open your mouth and let me see your tongue, or it's let me check your ear or look up your nose. And, you know, the younger they are, the, the weirder it is for them. The older they are, the more they understand. Now, I knew as their father, I knew that when the doctor was asking those questions, what he wanted. He wanted to look into their, their mouth and their nose and their ear to check on them, to check their health, to make sure they were healthy, to see if they can identify anything that would make them unhealthy. Now, when my kids were younger, they did fight against these checkups. If you're, if you're a parent or responsible for any little human, you understand this if you've been in those situations. But as they matured, as they got older, they got a little easier with the routine. They understood it. As long as there were not shots involved, that's an entirely different message. Uh, that's about demon possession. So <laughs> as long as there were not shots involved, everything usually went okay. Now, although I myself, as their father, am allergic to the doctor's office, I'm not supposed to go because I break out. Um, I do enjoy the peace of mind knowing that my children can receive a clean bill of health every time we go, most every time we go. And so this morning, whether you expect it or not, we're all in for a, a checkup today. In reality, though, I mean, every, every Sunday is like a spiritual checkup when we open the Bible. I get that. Uh, today, we are in for a spiritual checkup to determine whether or not you and I, we are spiritually healthy. That's what the letter of Ephesians is going to do. Just as the doctor checks up on our family's physical health or your personal physical health, so the Bible uh, reflects our spiritual health. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4, and I'm going to start at verse 25. We're going to read to verse 32, and then I will continue on. So here we go. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. So the goal for today is to determine whether we are physically or spiritually healthy. And I'm going to basically base all of that, that checkup, that spiritual checkup on one question I'd like you to consider this morning. Are you, you can ask it of yourself, am I grieving the Holy Spirit? Am I grieving the Holy Spirit, as Paul says there in verse 30? Paul writes to a church in Ephesus, the ancient city in Ephesus. He tells the young church there, the, the new believers, and he tells them to, to do not grieve, or you could use the word sadden. Do not sadden the Holy Spirit. Here's another way to ask this for your personal checkup this morning. Is the Holy Spirit smiling on your life or is he frowning? We all want to live under the smile of the Holy Spirit. That's where he does his best work. So would he smile upon your life this morning or would he frown? 
And there is a really important reason why we are going to think about that this morning as we reflect on these verses, because the maturity of your faith should be the number one thing that you're focused on in your life. Your goal, maturity in your faith should be the number one goal of your life. Now, we all have many goals, career goals, family goals, personal goals, fitness goals, all sorts of stuff that we'd like to accomplish. But as a believer, as a Christian, the number one thing that's always in front of you is your maturity as a believer. If you survey all that Paul wrote, the letter of this, um, the author of this letter and many more in the New Testament, if you look at all the letters that he sent to the early church, all of them, you would hear him plead with the people of God to continue to mature in their faith, to put off who they were and put on the new person in Christ, to mature out of childish things and grow up into adult things, to understand the deeper things of God and not just stay on the surface level things of God. Just before this, last week, Paul basically said this exact same thing, but what he said was put off the old self and put on the new self. That was last week's message. We have been given the power to put off the old and put on the new. And this is really important for us as a church because I would like you to know as someone who loves you and who really, really enjoys shepherding you and being your pastor is that you, your life will not change for the better if you continually grieve the Holy Spirit. Nothing is going to improve. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change if you continually grieve the Holy Spirit. And now some of you might say, okay, what's all this Holy Spirit stuff talk about? Okay, you got to explain that because I got to figure out if I'm making this person sad or not. But I got to know who this person is. So let me just tell you where we're headed then. First, I'm going to tell you who the Holy Spirit is. Um, as much as I can in just a few minutes. We could probably spend all year talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to try to do the best that I can for just a few minutes. So first, we're going to talk about who the Holy Spirit is. Second, we will consider what grieves him, what makes him sad. And third, we will consider how we can honor the Holy Spirit by making those necessary corrections to our life. All right, so first, the Holy Spirit. In order to set up this entire sermon, I want to give some attention to the person of the Holy Spirit. And just by saying that, I've already really made my first point. The Holy Spirit is a person. Holy Spirit is a person. I can recognize that many times the Holy Spirit is referred to as a thing or an it or a substance or this weird random force that is hard to explain. But it is clear throughout the entire Bible that the Holy Spirit is a person. And we know he is a person because he can be grieved. He can be saddened. We are not talking about a force or a presence, but a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is also God. So our God is three in one. If you're a Christian, uh, what, what culture would call evangelical Christian, a Christian who reads the Bible and believes it, you are a uh, very select few people in the world who believes that God is three in one. Every other religion does not believe that our God is three in one. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one person, one essence, three persons. They're co-equal and they're co-eternal and I'm done, okay? Because that can confuse all of us and it's a mystery and I could keep talking about it, but I'll confuse myself and you'll be confused too. Just know the Holy Spirit is a person. And this is not the first mention of the Holy Spirit that Paul brings up to us in this letter. He mentions him back in chapter one, verse 13. This is what Paul says. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, he's talking about Jesus. In Jesus, when you heard about Jesus, when you heard about what he did and who he was, and when you were saved because of that belief, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is given to us as a sign and a seal. The Holy Spirit is given as a sign and a seal to show us that we are new in Christ. We are an altogether new creation. This is a promise that cannot be taken away from the Christian. The Holy Spirit does not come and go into your life. You know, I have the same amount of Holy Spirit as you have or you have or you have. We don't have different levels of the Holy Spirit. That's also kind of a lie that gets passed around quite a bit. The promise of the sealed Holy Spirit cannot be taken back. Upon the moment of your belief, God, the creator of the entire universe, because of what Jesus Christ has done, pours out his Holy Spirit into your life. That's why you're able to walk in newness of life. That's why you're able to think differently and speak differently and act differently. And that's why you're even able to mature or why you're even able to read the Bible and understand. It is because God's Holy Spirit is allowing that work in your life. And let me illustrate maybe the sealing of the Holy Spirit in a different way. Paul isn't saying, watch out, okay, be on guard, because if you sadden or grieve the Holy Spirit, he's going to leave you, right? He's a cranky friend. But the first time you let them down, they're gone. That's not the Holy Spirit. That, that's not how it works. Instead, what Paul is saying, remember what God has done. Remember who you are. You're not like those around you. You were once dead, but now you're alive. You were once, once blind, but now you see. And the security, like we talked about during the prayer time, the security of your salvation is because you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That is how you are secure in Christ. No matter how rough your week was, and they can get really rough, very rough, the seal of God's promised Holy Spirit is the security of your salvation. That's who secures your salvation. Now, we can read this and think that Paul is encouraging us because of some sort of insecurity, right? We, we often read things like that, like do this or else, do that or else God's going to leave. God's not going to be pleased. He's going to be really angry with you. This is just not the case. Paul is encouraging us to put on the new self, as he's already said in previous verses, because the Holy Spirit has sealed us. We have a promise. We are sealed. And there's nothing we can do to make the Holy Spirit leave us or walk away from us. Paul doesn't say, don't allow the Holy Spirit to get too far away because he's going to leave forever. He just says, don't grieve him. Paul doesn't say, watch out. He's got better interest around the corner. You better keep his attention. He just says, don't grieve him. So I think a lot of doubt that we struggle with, I mean, just kind of surface level looking at these verses, what this does, this removes the doubt that we need to continually perform for God, which is what a lot of times we actually do through life. We think that if we perform at a certain level, that God is going to love us more than he did yesterday. It's just not true. The Holy Spirit has sealed you. You are his, he is yours, and nothing can change that forever, forever and all eternity. We often think our relationship is dependent. We often think our relationship with God is dependent on how we act, but it's not true. Our relationship with God is secure because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you think about your life, even sitting here this morning, what gives you the assurance of your salvation? How do you even know as you're walking in those doors that you're still a Christian? Where does that promise come from? What gives us the confidence to know that the Bible is true every time we open it up every Sunday to read it? What gives us the confidence to know that we should apply it and obey it and believe in it? Why is it that we gather each week to even read the Bible or hear someone talk about it or sing songs about the Bible or pray to God? 
Well, it gives us the confidence to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and what he accomplished actually is the only hope for all humanity. Well, that is the promised Holy Spirit. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives. So all this is from the Holy Spirit, sealed in us, given to us in Christ. And let me add this. I often get this question. I think I'm a Christian, but how do I really know? How do I really know? Because I didn't feel like one yesterday, and I woke up, and that feeling hasn't changed. Now, I remember last week, I felt pretty good. This week, I don't feel all that great. First of all, you're not weird. That's normal, okay? Welcome to church, okay? Everyone's welcome. No one is perfect. But I do get that question a lot. I think I'm a Christian, but how do I really know? Can you tell me, John, for sure? And I'm very flattered, but no, I can't. I, I'm glad you have that much confidence in me. I cannot tell you for sure. This is a common question we do struggle with. So rather than probably give you like a, a, thing, a list of things to uh, check off to make sure you're saved, I just want to ask some questions back at you. And if you think that's rude, Jesus did it all the time. So it's not that rude, okay? So I want to ask I want to answer that question by asking you some further questions that you can consider. So here, when someone comes to me and says, I don't know if I'm a Christian, here's what I ask them. Do you desire to know the things of God? Yes or no. Do you desire to read the Bible? Does the church have a prominent or take a prominent position in your life? Do you desire to be around the church, the people of God, serving the church, attending church, just being in community with the people of the church? Do you desire to worship with God's people on Sunday? Can you see the change that has taken place over time in your life, whether small or great? Some of us, you know, move a little slower than others, and that's totally cool. I'm a slow walker myself. But is, has there been change over time? Do you hate the sin that you once loved? It's a good question to consider. We all remember who we were before Christ, and we really don't like that person. If you hate that sin, then you're probably on the right path. Do you, call what, do you call what God declares, um, do you call something good that's really evil? So do you look out into the world and, and say, well, that's, that's okay, that's normal, but God's word is all the time calling it evil and vice versa. Do you call evil good? Do you obey the truth that's found in the Bible? Those are just a few questions you can ask yourself. Am I a Christian? Have I been saved? Here's another way to think about it. Has the Holy Spirit sealed me? As a friends, many of us do play church. I'm not naive to think that every time I preach, even if the same people I may look at each and every single week, that some of you are not saved or not a Christian. Now, that, that'd be really mean if I was like saying that in a rude way or trying to make you doubt because I like that, which I don't like that you doubt. But it is true that oftentimes many Christians play the church game, but they desire very little of anything to do with God. Very little. So knowing this then, it makes sense why Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, the Holy Spirit is what enables everything in the Christian's life. Everything. We ought not to grieve the one who was sent to teach us and to lead us, to comfort us, to conform us. Um, the Holy Spirit, he is pure. The Holy Spirit is full of truth. He indwells us. He takes up residence in our lives. He teaches us the things of God, guiding us in all of God's truth. So naturally, because the Holy Spirit is pure, he is saddened by impurity. Because the Holy Spirit is full of all truth, he's saddened by falsehood. 
And just as we are saddened at the failures of those that we love, if you have someone close to you and they do something and you know it's damaging to them and damaging to the people around them, we often get sad. We, we are sad for our close family and friends who do something that's not healthy for themselves and their family. Well, the Holy Spirit takes the same approach to you. He is saddened when we do something that's not healthy for us. So I ask the question again, spiritual checkup, is the Holy Spirit smiling or frowning on your life? This is what Paul tells this church. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, okay? So here, if you say, okay, I don't, I don't know if I am. I'd like to know now because you freaked me out. Okay, here's the deal. I'm gonna go through a, fruit, through a, a few things, three things that grieve the Holy Spirit because Paul led up with that in the verses 26 through 29. So that's what we're gonna talk about now. I'm gonna read those things and we'll talk about that. Verses 26 to 29. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So the first thing is who the Holy Spirit, we figure that out. What grieves the Holy, Holy Spirit? The first thing, anger. Anger grieves the Holy Spirit. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I should clarify this. The wrong kind of anger grieves the Holy Spirit. What Paul is doing is this, was he, what he often does is he reaches back into the Psalms. Psalms are those uh, poems that are hard to read in the middle of your Bible that we love to read, but we really don't know what to say half the time because they're confusing. It's those things. He, he often pulls from that and he quotes that in the New Testament. And he's quoting Psalm 4 where it says, be angry and do not sin. So let's talk about anger for just a minute because the wrong kind of anger is going to sadden the Holy Spirit and that's going to stunt the growth of the Christian. There is a right way to be angry and there is an absolute wrong way to be angry. Now there is such a thing as good and righteous anger. There are many times and many examples in the Bible when God is angered at stuff. There is a time when Jesus gets angry, walks into the temple, into the old school church where people are worshiping and he kicks everybody out because they were selling things and using it for their own personal gain. They were not using it for a house of prayer. Jesus was angry. So I want you to know that we are to be angry at sin. We are to be angry at that which is evil. We are to be angry at that which destroys. Or, you know, if you look at the the news or anything and you say, man, that's evil. I should be angry at that. You absolutely should. It is okay for the Christian to be angry. It's okay for you to get upset at stuff that is wrong. But it is not okay to go to bed still angry. Now that is a very high calling. It's okay to be angry, but Paul says you're going to grieve the Holy Spirit if you go to bed angry. Why? Because the devil does his best work in the lives of those who are constantly angry. Another way to put it is don't, don't give the devil a foothold. Don't let him grab onto your shirt and hold on really, really tight. Don't let him get close to you because if you go to bed angry, he's gonna do his best work throughout the night and into the morning. Every night you sleep still angry about what happened in the past, you are following the devil deeper, deeper down his hole. Some of us have been stuck in the same place for many, many years in our Christian walk. We just have. And this may be because, although we worship Jesus with our lips during the day, at night, our heart is far from him. 
Our heart is angry. Our heart is bitter. From a past grievance of a close family or friend, or maybe every day you're just angry because you're the smartest person you know, and you cannot believe how no one measures up. And it's frustrating. I know, I'm one of those people. Some of us have been stuck for so many years, and I can tell you it's because we worship Jesus during the day, and we give the devil a foothold at night. Now, Paul can say this about anger. Paul can say, no matter what has happened, don't go to bed angry. Now, that's, that's crazy, right? Because there's some really bad evil that's done to us. But Paul can say this because of one simple phrase, because Jesus paid it all. That's why Paul can say this. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who endured the wrath of Almighty God in order to pay for the sins of the world. Jesus paid for the sins of which you were angry about before you went to bed. Those sins are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus conquered all the evil. At the end of the book of Matthew, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It's all mine. Everything you see is mine. Everything you see is going to forever be mine. The devil has no place here. He's been defeated. At the cross of Jesus Christ, evil was defeated. Satan is using his last days to do as much destruction as he can before Christ returns. But you see, Paul can say, get angry at evil, but don't go to bed in that anger because Jesus has already paid it all. There is no further justice needed. The whole time, Satan is defeated. Jesus has been given all this authority, right? His blood covers our sins, my sins, past, present, and future. A multitude of sins, the Bible says. That's a lot. That's many. That's the sins of the world. All of that is forgiven in Jesus Christ. And there we are, falling asleep, really, really angry. Not allowing the blood of Jesus Christ to cover the sins that get us so angry. I do want to encourage you to be angry with sin. Be angry when someone sins against you. Be angry when you see sin in the world, when you see evil take place, and then forgive them just as you have been forgiven. One of the hardest things to do as a human being is to forgive people. Letting the sun set on your anger may be the most prideful human act that we can do because although Jesus was willing to forgive those who crucified him, although Jesus looked down upon those who were mocking him, he still forgave them the entire time. And there we go to bed, acting like that forgiveness isn't possible for the person who's done us wrong. Friends, if there's no hope for you, and if there's no hope for me, there's no hope for anybody. If there's no hope for the worst person on this entire planet, then salvation, there's no hope in that for us either. We can't say God only saves the best of us, the cream that rose to the top. That's not what the Bible teaches. And when we look out, this is really challenging for us. We can say, John, I know some pretty wicked people. I mean, all you have to do is scroll through some stuff, look at some websites, read the news, and there's some pretty wicked people out there. Right, but friends, we must understand what the Bible teaches. If the gospel is not powerful enough to save them, it's not powerful enough to save you. This is very sobering. Be angry, but don't fall asleep in your anger. Don't let the sun set on your anger. This saddens the Holy Spirit because he has freed you from the poison of bitterness and anger. He has flung open those prison bars and he has allowed you to walk free and he calls you out of that anger. He calls you out of that anger to lead you into a new life. So that's anger. Next is stealing. 
Paul says, the thief should no longer steal, but do labor, doing honest work so he may earn and share. Now, right away, we might go, wow, this is kind of strange. I mean, personally, I don't know uh, anybody who makes their living based on what they steal. Unless some of you are really tech savvy, which I wouldn't understand anyway. You could probably trick me. But I really don't know anyone who says, yeah, I make all of my earnings and my living and I pay my mortgage and I drive my car because I steal for a living. Well, I'm sure that was a thing back then. The Christian has been made new by God's indwelling Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are to seek honest work, honoring God with all that we do, and then share what we have. You notice that it's be angry, but don't let the sun go down. Don't steal, but you should give. And we'll talk about corrupting talk next. So there's two sides to the coin. Don't do this thing. You ought to be doing this thing. So some of you might say, well, I don't steal. So done. I can just check out till he goes to the next point. It's not sunny out anymore. Fall is coming. The snow is falling and I'm angry anyway. So I'm just going to hold on tight and John will be done soon. Hold on a minute. I got something for you too. Okay. The desire to steal is born out of desire to have what you cannot have. So maybe you don't have this desire to take that which is not yours. Like, like you walk down the street and you just have to have it so you take it. Maybe that doesn't well up in your life, but I can tell you that you do have a desire. We often have the desire to get as much as we can and keep it. That is a natural desire for us. That is a temptation. It's called money. It's shiny. It buys things. Those things are cool and we like them. Paul can say, don't steal, do honest work and share because he knows that the human heart covets what it doesn't have. It desires what it doesn't have. And if you are that way, you're simply not being thankful for what God has provided. May it not be so in the church. May we grow out of that, mature out of that. Now, it's interesting how the gospel has a unique way to put things into perspective. And as a result, thankfulness will grow out of our devotion to Jesus. That's kind of a natural thing that happens. And although the stealing verse may seem out of place to you, because again, many of you are not walking around stealing stuff in order to pay for things. But look at the second half of the verse. Are you sharing what you earn? That's what Paul was instructing this young church to do. Don't walk around and steal anymore. Go find some work. Yeah, he may not pay you as much as you got when you were stealing, it may be a little less. You may have to take the job you didn't like. But then once you do that, bring what you have and share. Are you joyfully bringing a gift to the church, knowing that God will bless that gift and use that gift to advance his kingdom here on earth? That's a struggle for many people. Money takes such a prominent position in our heart. It's, there are seasons in our life where, where all of us will struggle with it in very, very significant ways. We don't desire to share in those moments where we feel lonely because our money makes us feel not lonely anymore. Or money makes us feel like where everything is going to be fine. There is not a thing in this world that can touch me. Why? Because I can just pay for anything that happens. Not true. Money is such a false sense of security. And so although we may not understand the first part of this verse of don't steal, I mean, if that's you, don't steal, right? You can come talk to me. I can help you. But the second half of the verse is just as important. So you can check off the first part, but can you check off the second part? Are you sharing what you have with God? Third, third thing grieves the Holy Spirit. So anger grieves the Holy Spirit, stealing and not sharing grieves the Holy Spirit, and corrupting talk, rotten speech. Think of like rotten fruit. 
I mean, I know some of you guys like bananas that are brown. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about further, like beyond the, the rottenness that you can't even pick up and eat because it'll make you sick. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This instruction is always timely and always relevant because many of us claim to speak the truth. We love speaking the truth. It makes us feel very, very good, no matter how bad that person just felt. We really enjoy that. I like being right. I hate being wrong. You can ask my wife. I love being right. It feels amazing. This is so timely and relevant because many of us claim to speak with grace and our truth and love to one another, but our timing is always way off. Look at what Paul says. As fits the occasion. We ought to be people who speak the right things at the right times, not just the right things all the time, because then you're just annoying. And no one's really going to tell you that, so it's my job to tell you. I can take all the pain out. It's okay. But the person sitting next to you would love to tell you, I know that you're right all the time, but you don't have to tell me all the time. (laughs) You can wait. And many of us do have right things to say, but please, before you speak, consider the time in which you say it. We don't want to sadden the Holy Spirit by being pompous or arrogant or prideful just because we have the right thing to say, just because we can overpower the next person, the person sitting next to us with our words, with all the right things we have to say. If you're using your words to weigh people down, you're doing it wrong. Paul tells us to speak to one another, not in a corrupting way, but in a way that builds one another up, in a way that feels like grace has just been showered upon us. How cool would it be to be known as a church whose goal it is to use our words to build one another up? That'd be fantastic. We have been given the ability to speak truth. That's for sure. The Holy Spirit has taught us the truth of the Bible. We've been given the ability to speak what is true because God says it is true. And we should always speak this truth in the right moment with the right intention of building one another up. If you like to talk to, uh, you know, to show your hand and just let everybody around you know that you're right, that's the wrong occasion. Save that for when actually someone needs it. This happens to me a lot in the past. I'm the guy who said everything whenever I wanted to. It was not a good look. I had to learn that that was very damaging to people. I would just say things all the time. Just all the time. That's why somebody about two years ago said, why don't you just start typing out everything you say in your sermon? That way you won't see all the weird stuff you've been saying. <laughs> see, that's, that was the right occasion and that was the truthful word, right? That was, that was good. I needed to hear that. If you struggle with shooting off at the mouth, slow down, consider what you say first then only say what's going to build the other person up. And you would actually be surprised how little that can be sometimes. I often tell people sometimes the presence of a friend is far more powerful than the words of a friend. We're to build one another up with our words. And when you do this, the Holy Spirit is glad and he goes to work in your life. Then Paul summarizes verses 31 and 32. He summarizes this new life in Christ, all the things that should be different now if you're a Christian, not only anger, not only stealing and sharing, not only corrupting talk. He says, let all the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the clamor and the slander be put away along with all malice. Those are like all the bad words we don't want to be. Wrathful, malice, anger, clamor. I mean, you're just that person that every time someone sees you, you got something to say. 
and it's always forceful and it's never happy and it's always because somebody else is doing something stupid. Put all that away. What does he say? Be kind to one another. Be kind. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So, we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. And if you're here this morning, I want you to consider are those three categories. Your anger, are you sharing? And is your speech corrupting or is it building up? Those are the three things you want to check your life against. If you're guilty of being angry all the time, if you're guilty of not sharing what God has blessed you with, and if you're guilty of using corrupt and rotten speech far more than you're using speech that's building you up, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. And friends, I'm here to tell you that's, that's maybe why your life hasn't changed at all. Or that's why it's only changed a little and you're frustrated because you thought the Bible was the magic key to happiness and success. So how does this change our tomorrow? How can we move through our day-to-day without grieving the Holy Spirit? We often say at this church, there's not like some magic moment in your life where everything's just gonna come at you all at once and you're gonna be like God. It is the daily humdrum struggle, step after step, humdrum. I had never said that before in my life. It is the daily walk of the Christian. You have to take it one step at a time. You have to take it one hour at a time. But remember, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's been given you. I mean, you, you have been given the power, all right? So there's one thing I want you to do to apply this. To, to factor this into your life right now. Whether it's the person sitting next to you, the people who aren't here with you this morning, the kids that are downstairs, your coworkers, your neighbors, anyone that you interact with. Here's the number one thing we're going to do this week. Treat others the way Jesus has treated you. Now that's pretty broad. We can fit a lot under that. That is the goal of the Christian, is to treat other people, not only if they deserve it, treat other people the way Jesus the way Jesus has treated you. Many of us spend our time wondering why the Christian life isn't really changing who we are. We've talked about that. And this is because we have brought the lie. We've, we've, we've bought into this lie and thinking that if we attend church, if we smile at others, if we maybe serve on a team, or if we're here more consistently than we used to be, somehow our tomorrow is going to be different than our today. That's just simply not true. It may provide you with a small break in how your life is going, but it's not going to change anything. Your life will begin to change when you treat others the way Jesus has treated you, right? So think about it. Let's just do the three real quick again. God hates when we go to bed angry, when we're festering, when we're not forgiving to somebody, when we're holding on to that anger. God hates that. And he loves when it is dealt with before the sun goes down. And the cross of Jesus Christ has already accomplished what you think your continued anger will accomplish. You're putting yourself in the place of God if you're not willing to let go and forgive. And yes, this means you will be treating others differently than they may be treating you, just like Jesus. This may mean that you are forgiving people for the wrong that they've done to you, whether they know it or not, whether they even agree to it or not. In our family, it's, it's common practice. We're raising our children to be very gospel-centered and Um, you know, check with me in 10 years how that went. But we say, if you do something wrong, you have to say, Jackson, I was wrong for blah, blah, blah. Will you forgive me? I am sorry for what I've done, but will you also forgive me so we can have a restored relationship again? Now, the person on the other end, what can they do? They can say, yes, I will forgive you. 
Or they can say, I don't know. Or they can say, no, not right now. Now they know mom and dad are listening, so normally they say, yes, I will. But there are times that I have noticed as my kids are starting to mature, and it's okay if I talk about them because they give me permission. It's okay. they, I've noticed that sometimes they're like, I'm still really angry. This is ridiculous. Well, it takes time. But friends, Jesus forgave you when you were his worst enemy. He saved you while you were still a sinner, while you were an enemy to God, while you hated all who he was and all that he had done. His grace reached down and picked you up. And so we ought to treat others the same. Don't be the person who says, I don't want to be angry and I'd like you to forgive me and then demand they forgive you because you can't control that part. You can't control that part. Number two, God hates stealing. It's one of the 10 commandments, just so you're aware. He loves when his people earn and share what they have just as he has shared his entire life with us. That's why at our church, we encourage financial giving. We encourage you to give your time, serve on a team. We encourage you to use your gifts and abilities to further the kingdom of God. All three of those things, your time, talent, and your treasure could be used for the kingdom of God. If you're not sharing what God has given you, just know that Jesus gave his all to you. His all. He gave it all until he was dead. And so what we say is we give until it hurts. We give so we can actually feel it. We give so we can make a change in our life. And number three, God hates corrupting talk. He loves when we build one another up with our words because we have been given the true word. The true word, which will open the eyes of the blind and raise the dead to life. Friends, I love coming to church on Sunday morning because a lot of you smile at me and say nice, encouraging things. It's the best time ever. I love it. Well, let's continue to do that outside of Sunday morning. Let's continue to build one another up with our words and not let the rotten speech dominate our entire vocabulary. And I encourage you to act on what Paul has said. And may the Spirit of God smile down on your life and this church for many, many years to come.